So today we do have an exclusive with Josh because um, Ampersand had previously raised about $15 million and right now they're about to announce a $20 million fundraise. How did that happen and uh, how are you feeling about it? Oh, it was uh, most of my time was focused on, has been focused on fundraising for the yep. past year, 18 months. Mm -hmm. We had a term sheet from, from an investor and they pulled it, pulled it away right, right away. This is just as cases we're, we're picking up in California. So we'll say on average, a Kigali motorbike driver about $700 a year, oh. right, which is life-changing. Yeah. First, so we are competing a bit on, a, on an unlevel um, playing field, um, but I think we've, we've shown that it's worth, uh, worth taking a look towards Africa. What's up everybody, we are here once again in Nairobi, Kenya, and today I'm super excited because we have the founder and CEO of Ampersand, Josh Will, all the way originally from New Zealand to coming to many different places around the world. He also speaks Chinese, which we're going to learn about today. And I, my Chinese sucks, so like I'm not even going to try to compare it, co compete at all. But he's also been around the world, lived in many different places. Um, to you know, starting off Ampersand in Rwanda, now operating in uh, Kenya as well. And we're going to learn about that journey, and maybe recently announcing a new fundraise. So we'll learn about that uh, towards uh, in this episode. So stay tuned, Josh. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Benji. Yeah, great, great super, to be here. super excited to have you on. Um, I actually took my first ampersand ride a few days ago in Kigali. Um, it was this. We'll, we'll put the B-roll where you can see this motorcycle. So this guy called Felix came and picked me up. I don't know. Was that a bull? That is, it varies. You know, it yeah. goes. It, it, I think the the latest <laughs> incarnation is. Uh, well, we had a red one, which was kind of Elmo. Okay. Uh, and then I think it's it's back to a, sort of a gorilla. It yeah. Started out as a cat. Oh wow. So yeah, all all very fur themed uh, creations. Yeah, and then yeah, so it was just it, you can see it in the videos. I get on this motorcycle and I um you know ride ride to. I was actually going to a meeting at the central bank and uh, the pull uh, <laughs> took me there. So it was, it was a fun pulling up there and we're like, oh, what, are you, what are you doing? <laughs> what is that? And uh, you get some fun faces of people like looking at you, like turning their heads to, to look at. So it's a really cool bike. Um, but they build, um, I'm sorry, they, they sell uh, bikes across uh, Eastern Africa, uh, you know, electric bikes where people have these batteries and then they, you know, service the batteries or people go and swap them out over and over again. And I shouldn't talk about the pitch. I'll allow Josh to tell you in one <laughs> sentence what they what they do. So, no, that's that's yeah. about right. I think yeah. what's what people see is is the motorcycles, yeah. right? And I think for a long time, and even in the beginning, we thought of ourselves as an electric motorcycle company. Mm. Uh, but the truth is that we're really in the energy business, mm. and the that's true from both a, a revenues um, perspective. We've just passed our first quarter where our revenues from battery swapping and providing the, this energy. Uh, to Boda Boda riders, so motorbike taxi riders mm -hmm. uh, in Rwanda and Kenya, th that energy piece is actually the bigger piece. And and when we look and uh, when we really look at the technology and the state of where it is, I think that's also where we add the most value. Mm. So we've spent a lot of time and effort um, developing and building a uh, a battery pack ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're the only company that does that at any at least at any sort of scale in East Africa. And we actually mm -hmm. build the packs in wow. Rwanda. And the reason that we went to all that trouble uh, is that there was nothing available on the market that you could just go, usually to China. We couldn't just go to China and buy something that was cheaper and more reliable per kilometer. Yeah. Um, and so over the past seven years, we've developed successive generations of these battery packs um, that are now 
you know, six months, they, they'll go without, without any issues. And then when there is an issue, we send someone out and they switch the battery out on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more reliable than the reliability mm-hmm. of an internal combustion engine. Wow. And, and certainly compared to anything else that's available out there in the market. Wow. And then on top of that, we've got the, got a, a software layer. So you met, met, uh, our, uh, our CTO Alp just last week. Yeah. Um, so he and his team have really developed this whole, just for our own internal purposes, software system that manages all the payments, it manages this fleet of batteries in mm-hmm. real time, mm-hmm. actually starting to now anticipate demand across the network so we can adjust the charging speed and pricing in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, because really those those batteries, that, that that fleet of batteries is our biggest asset. It's not it's not uh, the motorcycles we, we sell through through a lot of partners. It's not the physical charging infrastructure. Um, so yeah, that that that, that software layer is really key and it's not only just uh, has a massive benefit for us just that optimization reduces our, our capex enormously and prolongs the lifespan of the batteries enormously and promotes reliability and handles all the payments mm-hmm. uh, for batteries but it's also something that now uh, actually folks outside of africa are, are, are taking an interest in mm-hmm. uh, for battery fleets in south america and in india yeah and so let's take a step back i want to learn about this journey from new zealand uh, talk to me about New Zealand and like how your journey like began from there to towards the African continent. Yeah, so I, I guess I was a uh, grew up a lot in and around nature. We always we had a little boat. We would go out in the sea a lot. In New Zealand, wow. you're often you're very close to nature as well. Yeah. Uh, interest in in hiking. I grew up with National Geographic magazines on the yeah. bookshelf and nature oh. documentaries and and so i think very um, sort of attuned to not, not rugby not the natural yeah. world oh that was there too yeah. but yeah. Uh, <laughs> rugby is less related to climate change uh, a, a bit tough <laughs> on the, the world cup this year but we'll let that one slide <laughs> yeah you know it's good to pass it around like you know it's good to, if, if we just dominate all the time it's yeah you can't, can't keep winning all the time right yeah. you know i have to balance, give south africa something this year. exactly it's, yeah. good, you know, it's good for the game good for the game so so anyway uh yeah i think that's that's definitely that awareness is where that, that came from um and uh, my my wife, who, who we met way back way back in university, also similar background. And just as we were both coming out of university, um, we saw the Al Gore movie, An Inconvenient Truth, mm. um, and that's kind of where everything just kind of clicked into place. Mm. And uh, I've actually heard, heard around it. Uh, I was at the cop. Um, COP28 this past week, mm-hmm. and heard from, actually from a few people the same the same story. So a lot of people who work in climate now actually started or, or started to turn their careers and their their lives towards that that mission um, uh, way back. I think it was about 2004, 2005. Mm. The the first movie came out, mm. uh, and then, so that's really set us on a track. And at the time, I'd been studying um, law, politics, and Chinese. Mm. And uh, why Chinese? Like out of anywhere? <laughs> just randomly at university. It's just sort of one of those things that I was taking an, an international business course, and you had to take a language. And mm. I already spoke German because my mum's German. And I thought, well, you know, let's let's take a let's pick one of the riskier, more interesting ones, and and have a crack at it. And and uh, yeah, and it stuck. Wait, wait, du kannst auf Deutsch sprechen. Yeah. Ich habe sie auf Deutsch gelernt. Oh, natürlich. Es gibt viele deutsche Leute in Tanzania. Ja, natürlich. Also meine Schüler, wir haben zehn Jahre auf Deutsch gelernt. Aber heute mein Deutsch ist nichts so gut. Wow, es ist cool. Ich wusste gar nicht, dass man das immer noch auf der Schule in Tanzania lernt. Aber ich kann nicht verstanden, viele Deutsch. So, yeah. You can clearly tell my German sucks, but I did learn German for 10 years. Oh, that's cool. So, English, German, Chinese, what else? Ah, uh, no, that's it. That's okay, it, that's it. Cool. I was about to say. My Swahili, maybe? 
We're working on it. Okay, do you have a, uh, a Kenyan name yet or no, Rwandan name? No, I, I've attempted du- uh, some uh, attempts at Duolingo are about as far as I've got so far, <laughs> unfortunately. Nice. <laughs> so, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. You're, you're telling me about your journey and then yeah, no worries. German. Yeah, yeah so, uh, so I had studied Chinese already and then it was so clear and actually in the, in the uh, Inconvenient Truth movie that you know, mm. China was on track at that time to becoming the world's biggest emitter. And so mm-hmm. naively, we were like, okay, we should go to China and see if there's something we can do and be useful in mm. this climate change thing. And you know, obviously it's completely naive. Um, mm. uh, except that my, my wife actually had a relevant degree and got an internship with um, the uh, NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is uh, a legal uh, US environmental law NGO. Mm-hmm. And so she actually managed to start on a track, completely unpaid, mm-hmm. as it was back then, unpaid internships were, were the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a bit longer to to actually start working on climate change. I ended mm-hmm. up taking a job as an intellectual property lawyer in China, so using my uh, using my law degree mm-hmm. so that we could pay off our student loans and, mm-hmm. and you know put food on the table while Claire worked up. And what actually evolved was kind of a grand, a grand bargain between mm-hmm. us. So while Claire was working in these unpaid jobs and actually building up enough of a resume and experience that she, uh, and then ultimately uh, going off to get a master's mm-hmm. to the point where she could actually make a living off of working on climate change. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, I worked, uh, I worked as an intellectual property lawyer and mm-hmm. uh, you know, paid the bills and then got to a point where we could then switch over. So within about three months mm-hmm. of Claire uh getting her masters and getting a, a paying job working on climate mm-hmm. i i left my job and um and uh started on this this journey mm-hmm. so was that the part on linkedin i saw it said like took a sabbatical like that was called <laughs> yeah. radical yeah yeah there oh. was actually an idea i got from from someone else uh there was i think it was a book someone showed me at the time so this idea was like if you're in your if you're in a career and you're not sure what to do i think some high performing mckinsey person of course like <laughs> developed a whole like thesis a framework plan a framework for picking their next career and uh i think i'm I'm, you know paraphrasing so Mm -hmm. definitely look up radical sabbatical if you're interested Mm. um but basically she did a big mind map of all the things she was interested in and Mm. and uh, kind of scribbled them on a board and then went out and bought people coffee and just begged borrowed and harassed Mm-hmm. Uh, to ask people, then went and volunteered in the narrative narrative funnel down to a, a few different options, and uh, and then um, went and did like sort of un- volunteered for like two weeks in these different roles, mm-hmm. and I think she ended up becoming a zookeeper because she loved animals and that's what she had the most fun at. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so it was quite a drastic career transition, but it was very methodical and you know went and tested and did her. Her, herself as the user testing wow. around. So for you, so for me, you, it was a yeah. bit, it was a bit different, a bit different. Yeah. Um, so the way I approached it was, well, I needed, I was pretty, I was also, uh, you know, wanted to draw a really big line between the two and get back into shape and, uh, which I'm not anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> None of us are, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, th- so, so I went and did a lot of walking. I walked the Camino de Santiago. Mm. I walked the John Muir Trail in California with wow. a friend. I went off to Nepal, did the Annapurna Sanctuary Trek, um, went on a nine day meditation retreat. So I did a lot of like wow. walking and kind of thinking and drawing lines. But what mm. actually a theme um, kind of emerged, which was, uh, everywhere I went, yeah. the climate was changing. It was like mm. it was definitely like re- making sure I was sticking on that on that path and not going off and doing something random. It mm. was very. I was like went to California. There were massive wildfires that year. Um, went to China. There was a huge drought. 
went to Nepal, all the, all the glaciers were melting, um, went to, <laughs> went on the silent meditation retreat in Sri Lanka, but the rainy season had arrived two weeks early. So everything mm. was covered in leeches. And oh, wow. it was like my first like real silent meditation thing. So I'd say, I think having a giant leech like crawl towards you is pretty advanced. Oh, next man. level mindfulness <laughs> to like block that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, so that was, that was kind of funny. <laughs> but um, but during interspersed with this, I went back to went back to China and actually studied a bit of Chinese again. Went to uh, and then went around visited some factories for electric scooters and e bikes because the original concept for Ampersand came about around two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. I was um, was living in China. The the Roadster came out from Tesla, and mm-hmm. suddenly everyone was like, okay, everyone had a big paradigm shift around electric mm-hmm. vehicles. Until then, if you will cast your mind back. Mm. Uh, electric cars were these pretty, boxy, like old school, exactly. not fancy Remember, looking. Like the first like, Prius, yeah, was, was, that was just a hybrid, and yeah. then you've got the 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 Nissan Leaf, the first Nissan Leaf at the time. Like yeah. that was about as good as it got. Yeah. And then suddenly George Clooney is driving around in this retrofitted Lotus Elise thing mm. that just tears around and has an incredible acceleration, and like boom. Okay, mm. so that was a that was a bit of a light bulb. But I was looking, I was thinking about this, and I look around me in China, and there were already two hundred million million electric scooters and e-bikes on the road. Wow! But they're like heavy, clunky. They look like they were made by Mattel yeah. in 1985, and wow. they had a power engine come out of them. Uh, and they're all lead-acid batteries, so mm. super slow to recharge, super low discharge rate, which means you just pull the full throttle. There's only so much power that battery can give mm-hmm. give at a moment. Without um, without the voltage collapsing, two hundred million of these, two hundred million, which oh is the gosh, same amount wow. as there were cars in the whole country. Wow! And these things are like three hundred bucks. Wow! So that's what got me thinking. Okay, this this the the in the Western world, people think okay, electric vehicles, they'll they'll follow this traditional mm-hmm. actually tr- this traditional path for automotive, mm. something called the Hershey's Kiss business model. Mm. Uh, you can look it up, but there's there's it starts off with really high-end. So Tesla was actually following the automotive playbook, right? You start with high-end, handmade, uh, super premium cars, even motorsport, like Formula One, like a lot of tech starts up there mm-hmm. and then makes its way down through this this Hershey's Kiss, through this curve. Uh, for, the, for, mm-hmm. your, for listeners who are not familiar with the Hershey's Kiss, it's an American chocolate that's kind of shaped like it's been dropped, or it has been dropped yeah. from above molten and then lands on a plate. So it's kind of has this, this shape. And then as you get down in the layers, you get the Tesla S, so you mm. everything you learn, the the mm-hmm. unit economics, the production scale that you get from that next level up, gets you to that gets you to the next level down. But the mission always for Tesla, at least what they said, was to get to a mass market vehicle, so something mm. that is your Toyota Corolla. So this is kind of how we've gotten over time to the Tesla three. So the the Tesla three is is like I was just in Dubai, like half the taxis there are Tesla threes. Wow. Um, it's at the point or close to the point where your upfront cost is about the same or the, the, with the financing and so on mm-hmm. that, that just the, you're at the point where it doesn't really make a difference anymore mm-hmm. um, in terms of your initial capital outlay to go electric or not. But my thinking was this, like, so take, taking that, is there a way where we can go straight to, straight to something that is, uh, that is, at that mass market, do mm. we have? Is that really necessary to go that mm. go there? Because it's all about following that traditional Hershey's Kiss model. It's all about getting to certain unit economics. Mm-hmm. But if we go shopping for unit economics, if we go to a market where you've got 
lots of people who are just cranking out the kilometers, spending mm-hmm. a lot of money on fuel, where there is enough of them as a, as a total addressable market and as a serviceable addressable market within a, a short time frame without huge leaps and bounds in, in technology, like new battery chemistries or something radical like that, where we can get there with a reasonable, reasonably achievable and fundable R&D program and, and, and get, go straight to that, then mm. that itself becomes the thin end of the wedge for mm. everything else. So this is the question you're at, as you're seeing, 200 million motors, electric motorbikes like in China, you're seeing all these patterns, you're seeing Tesla market expansion, like coming out to mass market even more. And you're asking yourself, okay, where is this ha- gonna happen next? Is that the question you're asking yourself? Or? I think it was like, where can we go straight to a vehicle that is a really a one-to-one replacement? Because mm. the scooters and, e- and e-bikes that we saw in China, they're more of an upgrade from a bicycle. Mm. They weren't replacing a petrol motorcycle. Mm. And to the extent they were, it's because petrol motorcycles are being banned entirely. But you're replacing something that can go 100 kilometers an hour with something that can go 25 kilometers an hour. Yeah, it's not, yeah. a, not a replacement. It can yeah. barely go up a hill. Yeah. Like you, you hit a parking garage ramp and you're screwed yeah. with one of these <laughs> things. Like, uh, yeah, you've got to <laughs> carry it all up, yeah. So, so what I was thinking was like, I guess there was another thought process going on here. It was like looking at uh, solar PV costs and, uh, and sort of cost increments and then looking at lithium batteries. Mm-hmm. So take solar. You start off with solar as only economically viable on satellites and mm-hmm. spacecraft. Like it's from a decaying hunk of radioactive matter. That's what they were, would otherwise use for the power, power plant for, mm-hmm. for, for a satellite, right? And so let's, let's put out these sales, but I don't know what the cost per watt hour is. Thousands, millions of dollars maybe. Yeah. Um, and then it sort of, Good. But then costs come down and you're making some of these and then it's okay, it's viable for remote weather stations or pocket calculators where there's a really high value per watt hour. Mm-hmm. Right? And you keep coming down on these increments and each mm-hmm. each preceding increment mm-hmm. builds the scale mm-hmm. and reduces costs mm-hmm. and, and, and finance and also prompts research to happen mm-hmm. in R&D that you then get to the next scale. Mm-hmm. So... You're looking at all these different solutions and what was the moment where you're like, okay, like let's commit to figuring this out and actually doing something here? Yeah, I think it was during the, it was actually in, um, I was living in Berlin at the time. So, so after I did my big spirit quest as my, uh, my wife's cousin, uh, who lived in Arusha for a long time, he, he coined the term, wow. stuck. So after I, after my spirit quest, I decided uh, it made sense to be based in Berlin because we had been living in London mm. uh, up to that point. Uh, and it was just the cost of living was so high. So I was like, okay, my runway is 4, 4x yeah. in, in Berlin because we can actually have our own apartment and not be sharing a house. Yeah. Uh, and I got put in touch with a friend from some guys that were running an accelerator program through, through Startup Bootcamp. Mm. Uh, they had a, a program specialized in smart transport and energy. Mm. And uh, I told told these guys about my ideas, and I had a more conservative idea as well, which was okay. Let's do solar charging stations for electric bicycles around Europe. You know, mm-hmm. easily, you know, few, far fewer questions around uh, how that's going to work, yeah. but you know, lower impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I and uh, Alex Farset actually, who's the um, who's running the program and is still still uh, in the leadership at, at SBC. Mm. I was just chatting to him this morning, actually. Mm. You know, he really. Um, you know, gave me the you know this sounds awesome and and gave me the the feedback and the courage as you know and getting that from someone who's who was really uh, authoritative really pushed me mm. to, to to do the to do the bigger harder thing. 
uh, and said, look, just get, get on a plane and get down there. So right in the middle of this accelerator program, so I did a, did the three month startup bootcamp program. He said, just get on a plane, go, go, go see. You know, go. To, so I went to, uh, went to, came to Nairobi, went to Arusha, and uh, and went to uh, went to Kigali, mm-hmm. and so to spent about seven or eight days in each place, and just got out there, got talking to border riders, got to understand the unit economics, looked at the fuel prices, understood their their payment terms, how much they pay for a petrol bike. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also looked at, you know, it was, was made sure that bicycles weren't the best thing to go into first and some other three wheelers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, really landed on, uh, you know, valid, certainly validated the, the potential unit economics and then looked at, uh, looked at uh, which country first and then just decided Rwanda based on that. So at the time, uh, and, and in general over the last um, 10 years, fuel prices have been higher, about 10, 20% higher in Rwanda. So there's, more uh, stronger value proposition for the customers. Why is that? Just uh, mainly trucking costs. So every liter of fuel that, that gets to Kigali, none of it comes from the region, right? So it has to be trucked across mm-hmm. from either Dar es Salaam or Mombasa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's very expensive. It costs twice as much to ship, a, well, to ship a 20-foot shipping container or 40-foot shipping container. Costs twice as much to ship it from, to truck it from the coast as it does to get there on the boat all the way from China. Um, wow. So that's the, that's the primary reason. Mm-hmm. So you picked Kigali because it was a place to test this out. Yeah. So Kigali, easy to register a company. Uh, coming here as a foreigner uh, to to Kenya uh, or Tanzania, especially getting a work permit, being able to register the company and get the paperwork mm-hmm. set up, and no one's going to invest in you if you don't even have a have a legal entity, right? Or there's a question hanging over there. So you said it was more difficult in Tanzania versus in Rwanda. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, can you be more specific for why? Um, well, I asked, asked around. I asked yeah. people who were also working at um, at other startups there in a base in, in Arusha. Um, and how long does it take to get a work permit? How long does it take to register a company? And they're like, oh, it'll take two years. This is going back to 2014. Okay. And so that pushed you off from like... like well, it's just not an option yeah. to start something from scratch here yeah. without external funding. As a Tanzanian, I'm disappointed we need to do better. Um, <laughs> so I really hope... Government official, as you're watching this, please make some changes so we can make sure Ampersand comes to Tanzania. Well, this was nine years ago, so you may, things may be much better now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the, well, hopefully Ampersand in Tanzania 2024, maybe. Maybe. We'll let's see. see let's we'll see. see. Uh, we'll see. We've got to make sure that the, the everything makes sense for their business, but I'm hopeful that we can we can get them over to Tanzania. Well, Tanzania um, is the bigger market. It yeah. has more, more twice as many border borders as, as Uganda, which would be our, our other next option after who has uh, the most border borders in east africa tanzania okay about, about two million two million border, and then kenya we're about one and a half to two million here but tanzania was already at two million like three or four years ago okay and then uganda would be one uganda's then. around one 1.3 okay and then kigali Rwanda's rwanda's, like rwanda's small, small right so rwanda's like 75 to a hundred thousand okay. of which about 55,000 are in and around the Kigali area, which is still great. Yeah. Like, yeah. We're already at 36% gross margin, which is 1,300 bikes on the road yeah. uh, on, the, on, the, on the core like swap energy business, and we're still making positive margins on the motorbikes. Yeah. Um, so it's great as a, as a market, but yeah, it's not the big, certainly yeah. not the big prize. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a place you went to test this out. It's so. a great proof of concept country. Yeah. So some of your listeners may be familiar with zip lines. It yeah. went there for the same, same sort of reasons. Also, you know, a motorcycle is a regulated product. So mm-hmm. going into a market, going into a new jurisdiction, mm-hmm. 
having fewer layers between yourself and, and government just because it's a smaller country. I'm from a small country. So the card, uh, debit card payment systems at in shops, like that started, that was prototyped in New Zealand by a consortium of international banks because it's a small country, it's easy to get to someone who can actually make a decision. In the Zipline case, you know, they were they wanted to start off, they're from Half Moon Bay, California. Yeah. They wanted to start off there, but trying to get FAA to rewrite their codes for aviation to deal with drones and the, mm. the railroads in the sky concept, the yeah. pre-programmed routes and so on. Much bigger hurdle for, a, especially for who's, you know, who are these guys yeah. who's a small company versus a country like, like Rwanda where, um, where it's just easier to get to get through those layers. And the second big, big thing with, you know, Rwanda is like the, the unit economics are just, um, can be, mm. can be really, really strong. So you're mm. low hanging, it's just low hanging fruit mm. um, anyway. So for us, in Kigali, there were lots and lots of drivers, 55,000. It's half of all the road traffic in mm. Kigali are motorbike taxis, wow. commercial motorbikes, and they're carrying people most of the time, which means they're consuming more energy, which is good for us because we're in the energy business here. Mm. And that's that's also the, the gap between those running costs and their fuel spending mm. is where we save drivers more money. So mm. we'll save on average a Kigali motorbike driver about $700 a year. Wow. Right, which is life changing. Yeah. For because most of the guys are on there's so much competition, they're on such thin margins that it usually ends up doubling their take home income. So you took this trip to East Africa, did all this research, and decided, okay, Rwanda is the place we're gonna start in uh, with a test pilot. Yeah. So what was the first thing you guys did? So first thing we did was was to um, work out like what kind of vehicle do people want? And I think in, in hindsight, like we probably over engineered that process. I think we uh, we brought we ended up bringing out five different vehicles. Uh, three, three were scooters and quite different configurations. One was one of those giant gray plastic metal looking things. <laughs> yeah. Had a big space for a battery battery pack under the floorboards, uh, which was cool. Uh, one that was quite modern looking and one that was, was more basic. We then had two different motor, like mm. conventional motorcycles, one a bit mm -hmm. more small uh, and then one that looked much more, much more standard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, it was quite a challenge to like get all these together, figure out how we're going to do the batteries and ship them out. And there's some, mm -hmm. there's always some kind of delay. Mm -hmm. So we probably lost at least like mm -hmm. six months in actually mm -hmm. getting everything there in front of people. Mm -hmm. And it was just clear from, from the get go from mm -hmm. customers, they were only interested in a motorcycle that looked like a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. We even went through with a focus group with the customers and said, okay, Here's, if we change this about the scooter, what don't you like about it? Okay, we put post-it notes all over the vehicles of like, okay, this changed, this changed. Mm -hmm. And at the end we said, okay guys, like I want you to imagine each of these vehicles with all the changes we've discussed. Mm -hmm. How much would you pay for that vehicle? Mm -hmm. Do you, would you want it and how much would you pay for it? Mm -hmm. And the resounding answer was we're not interested in a scooter. Mm -hmm. Most of the guys said, even if you give the scooter to them for free, mm -hmm. they would just give it to their wives to ride or Why? sell it. Because it's just, well, there's, a, there's some practical reasons mm -hmm. and then there's some more mm -hmm. qualitative reasons. Mm -hmm. So practical reasons, it's mm -hmm. just, scooter's just too close to the ground. Mm -hmm. The wheels are too small. So instead of going across every pothole, you go down and up, down and mm -hmm. up, down and up, you bounce along. Mm -hmm. All the plastics that are on scooters will just continually mm -hmm. break. Um, and against a rock or someone's gonna just you know, bounce into them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it's more like, you know, this, this, this scooter thing, I don't think people, people will look at me and they won't 
thing I'm a taxi, even if we write taxi on the front, people mm. will be like, what is that thing? I'm not mm. going to trust it. Mm. So they really wanted something that looked as close as possible to the, the motorcycle. to the motorcycles that they were familiar with. So would you get the first prototype for the motorcycle looking? <laughs> well, it ended up coming from a, from a factory in China mm -hmm. that had made it for some other mm. client before that ended up pulling out or mm -hmm. walking away and weren't interested. And so we, we had a starting point there from that prototype, and then we worked on that and built a battery pack for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's how we got our first bike on the road. Nice. Um, so from there to now over 300 employees um, you know, across, Tan I mean, across Rwanda, and I keep saying Tanzania because I'm hoping that they go there soon, <laughs> uh, across Rwanda and uh, uh, Kenya. And you, know, you said a couple thousand bikes uh, you know, where people are using your batteries there. Yeah, about um, 1,700 right now. So, okay. yeah. And this is across both markets. That's across both markets. Nice. Yeah. And then you're spending more time in Kenya. Is this going to be a bigger market for you? Are you guys going to be investing more here? Or yeah. it's, it's definitely a bigger market. I yeah. think, a, you know, a consequence of the funding environment mm -hmm. that we and every, I think everybody else out there is experiencing mm -hmm. um, means that uh, most of my time is focused on, has been focused on fundraising for yeah. the past year, 18 months. Mm -hmm. And the the VC ecosystem mm. is is just based here, and there is mm. a certain amount of importance of just being on the ground, being able to have chats with people, and mm -hmm. and explain give, give give investors comfort on where where you're at. I think we were finding that kind of a lot of attention uh, from the ecosystem here was going to some of our competitors who are at an at an earlier stage, and we're doing a good job of uh, you know better job than us on the comms game. Mm -hmm. um, so that was that was also part of the part of the reason but but it's also you felt it was important to have someone other than a, someone in the senior management team other than our our, our amazing mm -hmm. um kenya country manager hezbon mm -hmm. who's also now the the chair of the electric mobility association of kenya mm -hmm. and on the government task force but apart from hezbon um we uh we yeah we thought it was important for someone in senior management to be based here to really say hey with kenya's kenya's mm -hmm. a very serious important market for us yeah. and then finally um we've seen such enthusiasm and movement from the government here in kenya mm -hmm. towards e-mobility in general mm -hmm. and climate climate uh the opportunity of climate tech and climate uh, investment and, and for kenya to become a hub for that but in particular for um bottle bottles electrifying bottle Mm. that we felt it was important to also so that I could be here to mm -hmm. be engaged in that in that conversation and mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah understand better got it so at startups there is no shortage of challenges um, every year different problems every stage of the business different challenges and you look back and you're like wow this is the biggest thing that kept me up at night you know a year ago and today like I would crave for those problems now I have different types of problems um, what have been some of the more challenging moments of building Ampersand? Hmm. Look, I think COVID was tough, um, and it meant that we had investors. Like we had a term sheet from from an investor, and they pulled it pulled it away right Oof. right away. This is just as cases were were picking up in California. I think this is March 2020. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so that was that was pretty brutal, um, and that certainly slowed down the timeline. And then mm. came related to COVID also all the supply chain, like chip, chip Armageddon mm -hmm. and uh, China just basically shutting down. Like we mm -hmm. couldn't visit our suppliers. We couldn't inspect mm -hmm. uh, new new prototypes. It would just slow down, slow things down a lot. We were fortunate in a way that we got in and had a, 
market ready product before before COVID mm. um, and weren't because uh, it would have been really tough otherwise or even worse otherwise uh, and that is just translated into further and further delays the other the other big challenge has certainly been fundraising mm. I think you know we have you, there are there's, there's certainly first mover Wait, advantage I want to talk about the challenge during COVID yeah sure you know you like this so much of your energy-based business runs across mobility and people moving around and you be able to travel around and you're in markets where governments are like okay we're going to have a lockdown people have to stay home and so on and you have a team where you have to pay salaries and payroll um, every single month mm. and maybe revenues aren't going to be growing for th- the, who knows how long COVID is going to be is it a one-month thing is it a five-month thing is it a one-year thing um, how are you navigating that as a CEO of the business? Well, we were we were fortunate in that we had a couple of grants come in that we'd been working on for a long time, um, and that grant fu- grant funding, I think, particularly when the environments are so tough as they are now mm-hmm. and as they were then back then in twenty twenty, mm. um, was was that they uh, we, we had a five hundred k grant US from uh, from USA Development mm. and Innovation Ventures, mm. and we also had a five hundred k grant from Shell Foundation, and that was mm. really critical funding at the time. I mean, we had been trying to raise a two, two, three, four million dollar round, mm. um, but that that really kept the lights on, mm. and it was uh, it was all tranched out. So we had to had to keep meeting these milestones, mm. um, which means that, you know less less cash flow certainty, but mm. But at least it was at least it was there and, and non dilutive at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, I think we were fortunate in some ways in that we didn't have that many customers on the road. So mm-hmm. there was about twelve weeks of lockdown mm-hmm. in in Rwanda, mm-hmm. and during that time we were able to give our our customers a stipend so that mm-hmm. they could just keep keep mm-hmm. food on the table. And mm-hmm. um, in the end, it didn't cost us that much, and it, it created a lot of loyalty among those early. Uh, those early customers mm. how do you going from that okay now to these new challenges that you faced more recently as you as you talked about like you know globally there's this massive like tech question about funding and everybody's had to relook at okay what does funding look like for me or for the business and where does this go for us in our and how have you navigated that as a ceo I, I think it's it has been really challenging. Um, it has meant that we've had to constantly shift timelines because funding has been slow, mm. or it's it's just it's not just that it's hard to get, mm. but it's also um, it just really it takes a really long time, and that's been compounded by the fact that e-mobility is still something pretty new for mm. most of the VC community here. Right, they're used to fintech, used to software. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the main experience they have is with solar home systems, and and mm-hmm. uh, that is not always gone the way well, they would like. Yeah. Um, and so, so there's a there's a bit of uh, hardware is always kind of hard, I suppose, for at least traditionally. There's been a shift in in the North American VC ecosystem towards e-mobility, and until there was a big bit of big boom and bust, but mm-hmm. but about. Uh, I, I think it's about 60% of mm. VC capital in California at one point mm. was going into e-mobility, into mm. companies like Tesla, of course, and, mm. and, and others. Um, that We're a long way. That has not yet happened um, out here. At the same time, uh, another challenge has been that we've got a lot of, uh, because we own our battery fleet, mm. and it's very it's a very lucrative asset, mm. uh, but it still means we have a lot of physical assets, mm. not only that we produce and and sell, but actually sitting on our balance sheet. 
uh, and the batteries take a couple of years to pay for themselves. After that, they last for another five years or so. But uh, but that is a challenge for a lot of for a lot of investors who are used to yeah. you know, pure software. Mm-hmm. So 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 talk to me about that and like if it, so across the continent, you know, you've seen these challenges. Are, are these challenges um, the equivalent of how, like, as the team has so many questions, like, hey, Josh, can we do this this year? Can we do this next year? Can we, we had this plan to be in these other countries. Is this happening next month? What's going on? Um, how are you navigating those conversations with the team and the company during this time period of trying to fundraise as well? Yeah, and, and not being sure if you're going to even get the money you're trying to find. No, and it's been a challenge. And it was honestly, it was something that the team came back and said, "Hey, we just need some clarity here. Like, where are we? Where are yeah. we going? Are we, are we? Is it about expansion? Is it about R and like R and D? What are the? What we have to? Yeah. We have. It's a nice problem to have that we have so many different options for where we could go because yeah. we really started out as a as a full stack. We had to be a full stack solution. We mm-hmm. had to be a battery manu- battery designer, battery mm-hmm. manufacturer a battery en- energy network operator. We had to be a motorcycle assembler and retailer and doing a lot of the actual fabrication and mm-hmm. manufacturing and, and, and design of the motorcycles as well. And then we were also an asset finance company in the beginning, mm-hmm. which was something that we managed to carve off to our to our partners at, at, at uh, Mcopa, Watu. Jolly Finance, Watu, mm-hmm. Mogo, who are great. Um, and it's uh, it's a great business. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it, it, if done well, it's very profitable. Uh, but we don't also have to be a fintech company, mm-hmm. um, and so let's 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 specialize in, in what we do best. And I, we're seeing that evolution in the ecosystem, and we're seeing some companies come up who say, "Hey, actually, they just want to make and sell motorbikes." Well, that's mm-hmm. great. That's great for us. So they can take care of the motorbike piece, and we can take care of the energy piece. And you know, and over time, especially as governments are saying, "Hey, we want to go. We want all the motorbikes to go electric." Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing the big motorcycle OEMs now come into the frame and say, okay, we know that in order to keep selling motorbikes in this country, we've got to be part of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so we're seeing this, and I think it's just a natural process of specialization mm. um, uh, as, as we go. But, yeah. but that means we still have a lot of options. We yeah. could, could choose to just manufacture and sell batteries to third yeah. parties and not yeah. even operate the swap network. We could just be a software company yeah. if we really wanted to. Yeah. So there are so many different Different possible futures, mm-hmm. and and so we came together. We had a had a retreat um, uh, for a week, and and really looked at the big picture and, and aligned it with you know did have the whole VTO exercise and you know, aligned it with here's our north star. This is this is the purpose of this business, mm-hmm. and what gets us what gets us to that purpose, and then working back from that to a seven year goals, three year goals. What do we need to get done in the next year? What are we gonna, what are we going to do this quarter? Mm-hmm. I think that was really valuable. Uh, for, for for the team to feel like okay, there's a there's a very clear um, data driven, well informed trajectory. Yeah, uh, I think as well like going to things like COP, mm-hmm. uh, going to going to getting out there a bit more is definitely helpful to mm-hmm. feed that that process that thought process and make sure that we're not uh, moving in the in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. So today we do have an exclusive with Josh because. Um, Ampersand had previously raised about $15 million and right now they're about to announce a $20 million fundraise. How did that happen and uh, how are you feeling about it? Oh, it was uh, uh, exhausted, I think is about right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really tough uh, out there at the moment. And I think mm. 
there's there's also it, it took longer because e-mobility is is new so a mm-hmm. lot of investors had to like we're very ex- excited and interested but really had to un- understand. Really understand it yeah. um and uh you know it's 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 a process probably started a year and a half ago mm. uh so we've raised um several safes that are that are part of this round that are now converting in this round mm-hmm. uh as well as uh, uh debt um, so working capital debt from signum capital they have an africa go green fund which is backed by kfw mm. uh, and then uh and then and the new equity led by our existing series a investor which is a climate tech clean tech vc from california called the ecosystem integrity fund mm. Um, as well as uh, as well as several others participating, um, the largest the largest being Acumen. So wow, uh, yeah, big presence in East Africa, big portfolio and a big big network, tons of experience that we're really excited about bringing in as well. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Acumen and uh, Jackie Novakratz and the work that that they're trying to do. So uh, yeah, and she's a great she's just a great advocate for the ecosystem as a whole. Like you know, she's got so many um, great great such a strong network and so many. Um, platforms that she speaks on and and uh is able to sing the virtues of the sector here yeah well congratulations that's huge to be closing a round of funding right now and i'm sure you and the team um have a lot of big plans for the upcoming year for for where you guys want to be yeah we're super i mean super appreciative um you know i especially given i know how how tough it is out there i was at uh in london a few weeks a few weeks back at an africa investment conference there and uh, yeah, the, the the fact that we were moving towards close on a on a funding round that wasn't a down round, yeah, um, was was definitely drew a lot of surprise. Um, so so definitely really appreciative to be to be closing. It's definitely it's been you know it's been tough because we have to keep con- mm. changing plans and, and timelines. Um, so the goalposts are always shifting. But uh, no, we're we're excited. So this will get us get us a lot of uh, growth in the coming year. Uh, so it's great to not just be standing still but actually growing uh growing volumes yeah. we're looking at two to two to two to three x just from just from this round mm-hmm. uh and then yeah and then continuing to grow even beyond that but there's also a lot of focus still on r and I think there's a really mm. it's an exciting moment in a way that we have we've really proven that we can produce at a moderate you know medium level of scale mm-hmm. so in the thousands of motorcycles and batteries uh, a motorcycle energies package that is just cheaper and better from day one. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to have a big upfront investment from the customer that you can just roll in. They get a motorbike that costs less, less to buy, even less to finance than a petrol bike. Yeah. And it has, it's more reliable, has more power. You're not compromising on power. Uh, you have a swap experience that takes the same amount of time as refueling. So you don't have the problems of, of, of charging. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like it's like if you go back to 1915. Yeah, this is like the the Ford Model T, if you like. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a hell of a lot better than a horse and cart. Maybe yeah. it's even before the Ford Model T. I don't know. Like the the really early cars. Yeah, better than a horse and cart for sure. Um, but there's still so much yeah. room for improvement. So much room for growth. It's still like it's kind of our petrol motorbike looks kind of like sorry our electric motorbike looks kind of like a petrol motorbike, just as mm-hmm. the first cars look like strange retrofitted horse carts right there's still mm-hmm. so much upside on the technology side and that's yeah. why we really still think of ourselves very much as a as a tech company not yeah. just as a uh, not merely an energy company it's yeah. definitely not like just now rinse and repeat yeah uh there's still there's still so much opportunity and so much opportunity for the sector as a whole yeah. as companies continue to specialize in um and and create value for 
uh, both on the R&D side as well as just manufacturing and capital equipment. Relatively modest investments in cap in capex can still produce big big returns for savings for the customer and unit economics. If you look at regions, let's say across Africa or maybe even across the world, like in Africa, let's say in Nigeria, you have a large motorcycle uh, population, massive, yeah, massive, um, biggest in Africa, and. Um, you look at Southeast Asia, for example, you have a huge motorcycle population. Are there yep. any plans for you guys? Uh, first, like within Africa, and then the second question is, um, is there a reason why you guys didn't go to Southeast Asia yet? Well, for, so for Southeast Asia, um, at the time of starting the company, it really f- it seemed like, okay, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of, there are a lot of very smart um, mm-hmm. e-mobility electric vehicle engineers in China already mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia. Who, you know, who are already there and on the ground and know the, know the market, know that, know that ecosystem. Um, so part of it was definitely looking at, I think it was also just serendipity. Like everything fell into place. We knew we could make money here in Africa where we could save customers money in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just the first, also just the first place that where all the pieces fell and fell, all the mm-hmm. puzzle fell into place. It was a combination of those two reasons. Um, and then as we look as we look across the continent, certainly East Africa, the cost of fuel tends to be higher than in West Africa, mm-hmm. and and the and we're still competing, and that's the whole point is that we're cheaper than than fuel. a fuel yeah. uh, fuel operated fuel powered motorcycle, and uh, and so yeah, East Africa is d- still the the sweet spot. When we map out mm-hmm. the whole continent, we look at where how much margin. Could we could we earn, and how much can we save customers? Mm-hmm. And the the quadrant where that's that that number is the highest, and where the volume is the highest, so where there's the most just a total addressable market, mm-hmm. uh, is the largest. Uh, that that most of those countries, most of that cluster is in East Africa. Nigeria is the largest largest market in Africa, but fuel has, until recently has been subsidized. It's still pretty cheap. It's about 93 cents US a liter, so mm-hmm. about 750, sorry, to, um, 750 Naira. Um, so, so we can we could make money and save customers there, but then, then comes the next challenge. We can just kind of break even. Just for context, um, what's the price per liter in Kenya uh, versus uh, Rwanda versus uh, Nigeria. It's about a dollar. It, it fluctuates, right? Yeah. And and currencies go up and go down, and they've been going down a bit. But about a dollar thirty, dollar thirty-five a liter, okay. sort of where we've sat for most of the past uh, past couple of years. Okay, and then versus Nigeria was ninety ninety-three cents, and it was like around forty cents. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 you know, our listeners in Nigeria will feel like, yeah, ninety-three cents is really expensive, but that's because it was much cheaper before, right? Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, you've got the challenge of of the grid. So in Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, there's actually a surplus of grid generation capacity. There's more power, um, and so we have a, uh, and, and and that's actually a great thing that we absorb that surplus capacity because ultimately utilities and and uh, and ultimately governments have to pay for that power whether or not it gets used. It's called a take or pay power purchase agreement, and it makes sense if you're building hydro or wind or solar. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. There's no marginal cost to produce more yeah. or less energy. It's not like you're okay. Well, at least I'm saving money on coal or oil or <laughs> gas, right? Yeah. So, uh, so that's that's why those those contracts are like that. So we model it out. We'd save something like three hundred million dollars. Utilize something like three hundred million dollars of electricity if you price it in ASA. If you assume it's like an eighteen cents a kilowatt hour cost, and mm-hmm. um, here in here in Kenya, on top of saving all of that 
about a billion dollars a year in Kenya on fuel that wow. has to get imported otherwise. Wow. Wait, so, um, so you said you said that's what you've done so far, or would say? Would say. Okay, so if we made every bottle in yeah. Kenya electric, yeah. assuming uh, assuming around uh, a million, yeah. conservatively, yeah. a million, and it's probably more, probably much more, um, we'd save about that much in fuel okay. every year. Wow. And so it's a huge driver. Like forex is a massive cons- concern yeah. for for most countries across the continent. So anyway, yeah. back to back to Nigeria. The other challenge is availability of electricity mm-hmm. and reliability of electricity. Mm-hmm. So in some contexts, we can do it. We can do a lot with solar, yep. and and that's great, of course, because it's you know, entirely renewable. Mm-hmm. But actually, if we assume a similar sort of infrastructure to our current fuel stations, yeah. there's just not enough space on above, even if you build a giant, you know, build a structure across the entire footprint of a fuel station and cover and solar panels. That only gets you so far. It's not to actually electrify the whole, the whole uh, Okada population in in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Um, You'd need to have like adjacent roof space, about 900 square meters for each, each station. So it's Mm -hmm. a, there's a big practical concern and that's a lot more CapEx and someone else has to cover that CapEx. We're already, we already have the challenge of having those batteries on our balance sheet. Um, so to add all the capex for solar on top of that is yeah. uh, is is another big chunk. What is the end goal for ampersand for you? I mean, it definitely uh, focuses very much on Africa, and we have we have a lot of uh, value to add. It, it as it turns out um, across across the global south and even even beyond. Um, but uh, yeah, electrifying uh, electrifying border borders and and uh, eventually other other light vehicle forms in, uh, in in Africa is the is the goal for us. So we'd love to see every motorcycle um, on the continent continent electric by 2030. We don't presume that we'll be you know be presumptuous to say we're gonna we're gonna do all of that. That's yeah. a that's a heck of a lot, and, and you know, it's important that there's choice for customers. And there are different different shoes that fit different feet, right? Different applications, different yep. types of drivers, different budgets, different geographies will want different solutions. You know, mm-hmm. you have a, West Africa, you have a lot of the uh, more Asian style underbone motorcycle, the ones that look kind of like halfway between a scooter and a motorbike. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think it's, it's healthy that there's competition. Uh, I think for, I think for us, the, 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 the long-term vision is still very much focused on climate change and about making a big dent in that. Mm. So, within Sub-Saharan Africa, we 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 know that we can save with our current technology, current technology prices, mm-hmm. current battery prices, yep. which is which are now starting to track, have returned to their historical trend of trending downwards mm-hmm. in price. Uh, we can already serve about half of all the motorbikes mm. in Africa today. So the addressable market, you know, so the big picture goal would be. By 2030. By 2030, we'd love to see every motorcycle on the continent uh, electric. Now, maybe that's 2033. Like it's it's ambitious, right? Yeah. Um, but we know that we can we could achieve that for uh, for really a less less than just one year's spending by that market currently on fuel and oil, especially within the uh, 9.6 million motorbikes. It's about half of all the motorbikes on the continent that are in countries where we can already, we know we can already save customers at least uh, at least 15% on wow. their running, their operating costs and still earn a 20% margin for the business. I mean, it's only, yeah. we move that around, but yeah. that's that was kind of the semi-arbitrary, like thumb on the wind benchmark that we set for yeah. what are we, how do we define our serviceable addressable market? Yeah. And 
and uh, and so yeah, we think that's 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 entirely entirely doable. And and on the one hand, although we have we have to build these batteries and they mm-hmm. uh, they cost money and they sit on our balance sheet, we can still get that job done mm-hmm. for for like less than just one year's fuel spend by mm-hmm. those those uh, uh, by that that market. So about that's about thirteen billion dollars a mm-hmm. year is spent by that market on fuel and oil changes. One of the questions that um, one of my friends used to work at MCOPA and was quite senior there. And uh, one of the challenges they faced was when people would just order all these way cheaper solar panels from China and service it at like, you know, 30% cheaper than they were getting it at. And it was really frustrating for them. Mm. Uh, obviously, maybe some of them might be poorer quality and maybe not keeping as, as good retention later. Like maybe they last a shorter time period and so on. And not much services locally or operational uh, support locally in each market. Is that something you think about? Is that something you fear? Is that something that you are concerned by? Look, I think we've seen it. We've seen already. Like I, th- I think a lot of mm-hmm. sorry, a lot of the uh, a lot of the other companies that mm-hmm. that have come after us, uh, I think have had it. Maybe they've had investors. They didn't have enough. Um, weren't able to have technical enough staff, mm-hmm. or they didn't have investors that were, mm-hmm. um, you know, really serious about mm-hmm. the tech and understanding and not putting a product on the market mm-hmm. um, that prematurely. And so they went to China, got what they could get off the shelf, mm-hmm. and then the results have, uh, you know, have have really um, not not met the market requirements, not met product requirements. Because you're asking someone to shift from a from a pretty mature product, right? From a from motorcycles, they're not uh, they're they're essentially being the technology is largely unchanged since the 1970s in in the motorbike, the petrol motorbikes you see mm-hmm. on the roads in East Africa. Uh, asking them to shift to something much much cheaper. Mm-hmm. And you, and look at look at the the brands on those motorbikes. They're not, for the most part, in mm-hmm. in at least in uh, Kenya, Rwanda, ten, uh, Uganda. They're not like the cheapest options yep. um, possible. They're not to these no name brands. They they're Bajaj and TVS. And those motorcycles are are sold at a premium. And customers understand that when they buy that motorcycle, it's going to last longer. It's going to be more reliable. Yep. And there's going to be a whole range of different. Uh, spare parts available for that for that mm-hmm. vehicle as well, and so we're not in a lowest common denominator market. I think, and that's that's because it's a B two B market. Mm-hmm. So unlike solar home systems, our customers make money, cash money, right. hour by hour from the product, Correct. right? And they're also they make a, a lot more money. So when we make a lot more money per customer mm-hmm. as well, because it's they're spending about a hundred dollars a month on on just the battery swaps alone, mm-hmm. aside from the, the spares and the, and the cost of the motorcycle. Whereas a solar home system company typically makes you know, less than five dollars a month, mm. and and uh, and it's and their their customers for solar home systems they're relying on other forms of income yep. to pay to actually so generate cash. Yep. Often it's waiting for a harvest to come in so yep. they can sell some sell some surplus. Yep. Uh, so, so we we're, it's a lot easier for yeah. us. The, the other thing is we see our customers three times a day. Yeah. Right. So wow. any issues, any any problems with the product, um, they can, we we see them. And and also if the customer doesn't pay, the vehicle doesn't doesn't actually go anywhere. So yeah. we actually work with uh, Mcopa and other and other companies yep. um, who provide cheaper credit to our customers yep. because they. Uh, because they 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 have this mechanism to actually say, look, if the driver hasn't paid, it's it's a pay-as-you-go motorcycle. Yep. You can't do that with a petrol motorbike, right? Yeah. So someone can theoretically get a motorbike and take off into the distance, and yeah. you, you know, end up the bike ends up in Congo or something, right? Yeah. Um, because you can buy fuel everywhere. Yeah. 
Josh, the African region is a very fast growing one. You have 55, 54 countries, depending on who you ask, and 54 different central banks. And you've got, you're going from 1.4 billion to 2.5 billion within the next 27 years as a, as a region. Um, what, you know, feedback or thoughts would you have for climate tech investors out there in the world watching this uh, right now about the region? Well, I think it's that there's there's only three only three percent of climate capital flows to flows to Africa right now. Um, this was a report that uh, Kawisafi Ventures shared shared just uh, in the past week. And I think what we've what we've shown is that there is just some there are really low hanging fruit opportunities on on the continent. Um, also, valuations tend to be a lot lower out here as well. Um, like for for instance, you know we've put vehicles, electric vehicles on the road in a, that are fitting in a genuinely mass market segment. So they're not just uh, consumer vehicles for wealthy people or in a very specialized niche, but mm. you know that represent half of all the road traffic on the continent. And we're already at 36% gross margin with just 1,300, we hit that two quarters ago with just 1,300 motorbikes on the road in, in Rwanda. Um, you know, we com- if we compare to much larger, um, more more well-known uh, e-mobility startups that have um, got valuations, got raised amounts of money far, far more, far, far more than anything we're even a- remotely approaching. But if you look at the unit economics of where they are, look at some of the the stand-up scooter, kick scooter startups. Bird is Bird is uh, unfortunately not not doing so well right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and others like the there are fantastic deals here and there are fantastic opportunities that actually uh, have applications also far beyond the continent as well like we look at our battery packs now as the best the 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 lowest cost per kilometer the uh, the most reliability for these 100 150 cc motorbikes that make up 80 percent of all motorcycles in the world um, particularly in these commercial applications and uh, you know that, that has that has value far beyond the continent as well. So um, I think that's the that's what I would say if you're sitting in Silicon yeah. Valley and you want to do you want to do climate tech and, yeah. and yes you should. Um, I think you know there's been so much attention in North America because of Chips Bill and Ira as well as that's also drawn a lot of uh, venture capital interest such as it still remains into into the, that's focused on e-mobility into the domestic market first. So we are competing a bit. On, a, on an unlevel um, playing field, um, but I think we've we've shown that it's worth uh, worth taking a look uh, towards Africa. Nice. So, Josh, I have a two-part question. Um, if you were to start all over again, what would you do differently? And I guess tied with that, what advice would you have for somebody who's starting or like looking at getting into your industry? Look, I would say I wish I had kind of taken a leap sooner i feel like in the in the very beginning and because i came from a legal background i was very very analytical and i really wanted to answer every question and so you i would get talking to people like back in 2014 when i just had the, the beginnings of this idea and people would keep asking me questions and i would be like oh yeah okay i'll go away and write that question down and write that question down and i would i would really try to answer every possible question um but actually like i think they should have taken the leap sooner to actually go out and try to win over some co-founders. Because I think what what happens is 98% of people will just think of all the reasons why you can't. Mm. But then there'll be like two people who will say, that's awesome. Mm. I know, you don't need to have all the answers. There's enough there. Let's yeah. let's get Figure in and out, do yeah. this, you know, uh, and work through that process. Obviously, you have to work out if the chemistry makes sense and 
and if they uh, you know if they're if they're bringing real skills that you don't have into mm-hmm. the to, into the mix, um, I think my advice for for anyone who's interested in doing something something like this, what what really propelled me along this path was like looking at looking at the unit economics. So look at where were things that that are where are things that are currently powered by fuel or in some other unsustainable way because you know it helps to be working towards continued planetary habitability so if you if you're keen on climate change and that generally means look at look at what's happening with battery prices look at what's happening with solar panels and what what and the electrification of everything and what the uh, the iot of everything also brings to the equation and so look at what is look at conventional types of types of vehicle or other energy applications that didn't make sense yet last year five years ago to electrify but actually Oh, now the math makes sense, and we're seeing this yeah. trend now really kicking in again with lithium battery prices coming down. So, what didn't make sense yesterday makes sense today, and what doesn't make sense yet today is probably going to make sense tomorrow. And so, I would look at look at that and start studying studying those those unit economics and look look close to home. Look at what you what you already know or you're familiar with, um, and look at where there's a lot of people using that 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 energy system. Mm-hmm. Are you cool if they reach out to you for some advice? Uh, sure. Yeah. After the fundraising and everything like that, and whenever he has some tiny free time, <laughs> he'll be able to read. Yeah. On the personal side, what matters to you most in life and why? Boy, that's a tough one. Uh, look, I've I, uh, I've got a got a family, and uh, and yeah, I think that that comes comes first. Um, but uh, you know, I do care very passionately about. Our business and what we've built and the potential it has to really improve lives. I think on a on a long term level, it's very much about climate change. You know, continued planetary habitability. Like, dear listener, if you're listening for a cause, like making sure that the planet continues to be habitable and avoiding the the horrible impact of climate change on 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 everybody, on real people, especially the most vulnerable. Uh, is is, a, is should be motivation enough, right? Uh, I think it's a big motivator as well for my team. And on the flip side, the 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 impact, the positive impact we've had on people's lives is pretty dramatic. We had a funny situation recently, and um, so we we gather like 50 data points every five seconds from our batteries, and and one of the reasons we do that is for the planning of our swap station network. And so we very carefully use our own data. We also use data from trackers on petrol motorcycles to make sure there wasn't a, wasn't a mismatch uh, in order to plan the locations and then how many batteries we're going to put in a station. And we we were having a problem, though. We mm. were noticing that a lot of the swapping stations were uh, were over overburdened. We had, uh, particularly at certain times of day, we had all these, these stations that were, um, that were maxed out. They were just people come in there wasn't available battery like okay we and so we thought oh my gosh like we've made some terrible mistake like there's something wrong in uh, in our data set or the way we're calculating it and uh and so anyway we but we started digging in deeper and looking at the individual uh individual riders who were doing this the most uh, because we were able to look at that level and then we call up the customers and say hey what's what's so what's going on uh, are you uh, we're seeing we're noticing this this difference from your previous driving patterns, and uh, and the answer kept coming back to us is like, we've saved so much money 
by riding an ampersand motorcycle that they've bought land out, outside of town, bought a shamba, put a house on it, moved the family in from our country. Um, it's got a Mabati roof, it's got a cement floor, and there's outbuildings and and here's and we go to these customers' homes and like and these are the chickens and here are the kids lined up in their school uniforms going to going to a private school. Um, there, that's the outbuilding. I've just bought my neighbor's house over the fence there and I'm renting it out. Like, it's it's uh, it's it's epic to, to see like what seven hundred dollars over four years because we sold our first motorcycles four years ago. Mm. What that what that translates to mm. and that's pretty it's pretty humbling. Yeah. Um, it definitely feels, feels, um, yeah, quite, it's quite, it's quite, uh, confronting, uh, to, to, to be faced with that. And, you know, we want to see that for, uh, for many more people, many more people. people. I mean, there's 22 million bottle riders in Africa. Like, wow. yeah, that's a lot of people and, and the knock on benefits for that. And for it's only going to be a growing number. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have two and a half billion people on this continent in 27 years. Yeah. Uh, how out of 9 billion total world population, like how Africa moves matters. Like there is no way yeah. also that we're staying, if we don't figure this out, yeah. there is no way that the world is staying under two degrees of warming yeah. or, you know, let alone 1.5. Yeah. And I think most of the climate change conversation focuses on the big emission sources now yeah. rather than Later. looking ahead to what's coming down the line. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I've got a quick fire round for you um, as we wrap up over here. So, if you had an autobiography one day written about <laughs> you, what do you think the title would be? Please don't write this autobiography. It's too embarrassing. <laughs> well, that's fair. I think I think I'm a, I'm a look. I'm a I'm a, I think there's a bit of a characteristic of New Zealanders is that we're a, we 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 find praise incredibly awkward, mm. <laughs> and uh, you know I think we're modest to a fault. So I think I would hate somebody writing an autobiography. Yeah. Um, uh, unless, look, it, unless it comes to rugby, right? All blacks are different. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I think flying would be pretty cool. That's just for myself. Uh, yeah, okay, flying. And if you had a 25th hour to the day, what would you spend it doing? Oh, just hanging out with my son, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm one son right now. Yeah, he's uh, one I have one child, uh, yeah. two years, three months old. So it's a very fun time. Oh, nice. And I'm on the road too much and yeah. working too too late, too yeah. late in the evening. So yeah. An important one. Uh, do you like sports? I do. Yeah. What sports do you follow the most? Uh, lately, I've been very into tennis. Okay. Um, and. Uh, well, and the Rugby World Cup, of course, you know. That's <laughs> Tough one there. Mandatory. <laughs> mandatory. Well, yeah. Yeah, not not quite so happy with the result, but, but it was a fantastic tournament. I mean, yeah. there's such, so many, so many, like, I guess, what, five different countries that had a real, like, Chance it, winning. any of them could have won and it wouldn't have been a weird outcome. Yeah. Uh, do you watch football? I do not generally watch football, I'm afraid. Okay. Okay, just checking because you know the the <laughs> but question. But if I did, was, yeah. if I did, I'd have to support support Arsenal since. Uh, oh man, since that's the that's the that's the Rwanda team. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Visit Rwanda, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of our interview with Josh. Um, here, originally all the way from New Zealand, 
um, spent some time in the UK, became a lawyer, moved to China, uh, speaks Chinese as you've learned today on this call, uh, moved back to the UK, then moved to Berlin, uh, got as part of Startup Bootcamp, spent some time uh, looking at where to build uh, the company while spending time in Eastern Africa, Tanzania, Kenya, uh, Rwanda, and decided to kick off in Rwanda. And now today they've expanded to Kenya. Um, and the impact they're looking to create is incredible. Like, you know, you've got 22 million uh, border drivers across the African continent today. You know, as the continent grows, it's going to be even more massive. And the, the impact you can create by just saving, let's say, in Kenya alone is over a billion dollars. And so well done to you and the entire team for the work that you are doing. I know it's definitely not easy. I know with growth comes a lot more challenges. So I'm excited for this upcoming year for you. And, and congratulations to you and the team. Thanks so much, Benjamin. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Josh. Cheers and Cheers. take care, everybody. Bye-bye.